Hey everyone, Dan Keeler here, founder of Frontier Markets News, with another feast of insights and ideas from beyond the glare of global media. In this episode, I'm talking to Asha Mehta, who is Managing Partner and Chief Investment Officer at Global Delta Capital, which uses an innovative quantitative research approach to help manage a portfolio of emerging market equities to deliver both high returns to investors and high positive impact to people and the planet. Asha really is a pioneering investor who has demonstrated so many times the transformative power of capital, particularly in emerging and frontier markets, that she decided to write a book about it called, appropriately enough, Power of Capital. We'll be discussing the investment themes that Asha thinks will be most interesting in the coming years, the opportunities that some of the more socially or environmentally progressive investment themes present in smaller emerging markets, why ESG is the investor's friend, and how so-called developed markets and emerging markets are starting to look a lot like each other. But enough from me. Let's actually, you know, talk to Asha. Asha, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really glad you're able to come on this podcast. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for including me. In your book, you walk the reader through your experiences as an investor and as a human being in the countries that you cover. Do you think that writing the book has affected how you feel as an investor? Did it clarify or highlight any particular themes or philosophies that will inform how you build and operate your fund going forward? It's it's an interesting question, Dan, very thoughtful and I suppose not surprising coming from a writer yourself. Um, it's, it's very true that writing the book changed my philosophy on the role of investments in emerging markets. The original title for the book was not Power of Capital. The original title was called Emergence. It was the story of how these emerging and frontier economies had emerged. And my original objective was to make it a really fun, um, inspiring sort of adventurous read um, of my own story and, and stories of my fellow travelers across the emerging and frontier markets. I was inspired by a book called Adventure Capitalism, um, Adventure Capitalist uh, 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, just the adventures that you and I have talked about for the last decade, I thought in and of themselves were incredible stories that I wanted to share with the world, the rise of China, the rise of India, this notion of a frontier market and the rise of so many of them, like Romania and Vietnam. Um, Many of them are showcased in the first half of the book because these were the big winners of the last decade. I started writing the book in 2020. So just as COVID hit, um, and it was a good time to sort of take a reprieve and reflect. It was the end of the decade, and there had been so much transformation in the decade. But as COVID was breaking out, and I was writing the chapter on China, um, right when I started writing was when lockdown occurred first in December 2019 in, in China. And I was waiting for unrest to occur in China. I had always seen that the biggest risk for the local economy was unrest or, or sort of social unrest specifically within the country. And in fact, in China, it never came. Instead, it came here in the U.S. where the Black Lives Matter movement broke out. Right as I was writing the book, the Me Too movement broke out. ESG um, already mainstream, but became red hot. You saw this massive flow of funds into responsible investing. DEI became... Uh, very common refrain. And I started realizing that my book sort of converged these themes around how do we use investment capital to to create the world we want to live in. And then Russia invaded Ukraine again. 
And it just became very palpable that capital, especially as we started talking about sanctions here in the U.S., in the context of Russia, was being used as a weapon of war. And I started, this, this notion really crystallized the power of capital, that investment capital has been so powerful in building up countries and lifting lives and creating economies. And in the context of divestment or sanctions, it can have other effects as well. And so then the book was renamed, um, the content became a little bit wonkier, less adventure story, a little bit more um, sort of uh, history of economies and some philosophy embedded as well. Um, but the book did, did become entitled Power of Capital. And, and that's a thesis that I take with me in my investments. Um, Global Delta is a systematic investor in emerging and frontier markets. Um, we've, we've always invested with a lens towards sustainable investing, realizing that ESG gives us a more holistic view to evaluate companies. But it's so much more than that. It's recognizing that ESG doesn't give us just the opportunity to generate better returns, but we can actually use this investment capital to create positive impact in the communities that we invest within. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've been thinking of the power of capital in a beneficial sense, but you're right, the use of it as a weapon of war, and to be able to see that in such a transparent way as it unfolded and more and more countries joined in with the sanctions effort, watching that in real time has been fascinating. But I think it also does, as you say, support this idea that capital has a phenomenal capacity to change outcomes. And that's something that's cropped up in several of my recent podcasts. But it really does feel like more and more people are trying to put money to good use and not just to make a return, but genuinely to invest in things that are positively affecting the world one way or another. I'd love to dig into your original title, actually, because that was kind of a theme of mine for a while. The emergence, the idea that, you know, many of the emerging markets, they're not really emerging markets, they've emerged. Do you feel like that story still holds water, that emerging markets have emerged? Because obviously there's been a few setbacks. You mentioned the pandemic. You mentioned the social strife that's happened in many countries. Do you still feel like the emerging story, the emerged story is still valid? What a provocative question. Um, I, I, I agree with you that there have been setbacks. Um, but at a broad level, I feel that emerging markets have become mainstream. They've emerged in pretty much every context except investment allocations. Um, there have been setbacks without a doubt in the emerging markets, but we've experienced those here in the developed markets as well. Like I said, when I was watching for the social unrest with COVID breaking out, it didn't happen there, it happened here. Um, there was a provocative piece recently that is, U is the UK now an emerging market. Uh, what we've actually seen is some convergence of standards in terms of how do we rate economies between the developed markets and the emerging markets, many emerging markets. And, and these are long-lived stories, so uh, long-lived sort of characterization, so it's not necessarily a recent theme, but many emerging markets actually score like developed markets in terms of social and governance standards and vice versa. Many um, developed market countries either score as emerging market countries or their scores are falling so quickly that they're at risk too. But I see emerging markets as, like I said, mainstream in every way. I mean, we, we talked about this recently. Two of the three largest economies on earth are comprised of emerging market economies, the US and China, excuse me, China and India. Um, the bulk of the G20 is comprised of emerging market countries. Emerging markets have such an outsized voice at the UN. To me, I find it, um, if anything, 
uh, you know, sort of an open question on why are investor allocations typically on the order of five to 10%. So my sense is um, it's a good question. Have they emerged? And, and then the other kind of follow-up question is when is it that investor allocations will start to follow accordingly? So these things change very quickly. I'm wondering, could we see a rapid increase in investors allocating to emerging markets? Do you sense that might happen? I, I, I have to uh, sort of reveal my bias that I've been an emerging market bull for the last 20 years. The first, the first 10 years, I got it right. Uh, the last 10 years, not so much. The last 10 years has really been a story of investing in a very concentrated way, investing in a single country, in a single sector, in, in just a handful of securities has been a rewarding strategy. But as we look to the future here in the U.S., I see an environment with inflation that hasn't been seen in a generation, growth that you know, is at risk of falling, and investors wondering where are they going to get returns like what they've seen over the last decade and where are they going to get that growth profile. Many emerging market economies, not all of them, um, and, and you know, there's sort of a whole other conversation here around active versus passive, but with an active lens and accurate country selection, the emerging markets are posting very strong growth, strong quality attributes, and valuations um, that you know have reached historic lows. In fact, so I I think that this we are on the cusp. Emerging markets, in fact, have a record of pulling back, or, um, you know, sort of reverting back from a return perspective ahead of developed markets coming out of global recession. Yeah, it seems like we need to rebrand emerging markets in a way that doesn't make them feel like it's kind of fringe. Maybe that'd be the answer to drawing in more investor funds, which would obviously create that sort of flywheel effect. So during this podcast, we're covering some of the mega themes that you feel we should be on the lookout for as we move forward through this decade. Let's start with one that you've already mentioned that that's become surprisingly contentious in recent months. ESG has become a political football in the US and I believe in many other countries around the world. And from my personal perspective, I guess revealing my own bias, I've always thought ESG was just a very sensible risk management tool. I was shocked when it became a political issue, but it's obviously something that you factor in. And you said, I, I believe you said you think it's going to be one of the themes that will be a focus for many years to come. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I, I agree, Dan. It's surprising how even um, something as simple as responsible investing can become politicized. Um, I mentioned before, I suppose in the context of the timing of writing of the book where ESG had already become mainstream, that was pre-politicization. Um, and then there was just this incredible flow of funds into the asset class. And in fact, I saw many ESG managers using sort of the return effect over that period to demonstrate how effective ESG investing is. So you know, there's been this flow of capital. Investors who were early in that space were benefited by more capital pouring in, that's what drove returns. And so following a couple of years of very strong returns that were really driven by that flow effect, I think that in and of itself causes some investors to question, you know, was is this really fundamentally driven or is it a flow effect? Um, of course, the, you know, the, the bathwater went out and, and the returns dropped. Um, and, and so that gave a lot of fodder to those who were more conservative on the, on the issue to, to suggest that ESG doesn't generate returns. And perhaps equally importantly, you know, why did those funds do so well? A lot of it, of course, came down to labeling. And there's that whole other kind of conversation in the sustainability space around the alphabet soup. What is ESG versus SRI? 
Um, and by many measures, I think ESG investors are sort of victims of their own doing and that many of those ESG funds were simply labeled ESG, even though they weren't doing anything different, the greenwashing effect, or perhaps more severely, in my view, they were labeled ESG because they were constraining on some effectively random assessment of ESG. And that's not a fundamental driver of return. So if you've built your portfolios constrained on noise, they were positioned to underperform. So, so that speaks a little bit to you know, why there's been some blowback in the ESG space. But at a high level, I agree with you. I, I've always come at ESG with the notion of these new data sets, they give us insights into companies that we wouldn't have otherwise. And again, I'm a systematic investor. I invest on the basis of having broad access to broad sets of data. Pre-ESG, the types of data that we had access to was a company's stock price, the volume, um, some earnings estimates if, that there, if, an, if a sell-side analyst was covering it, and financial statement data, which is pretty good. Um, even that, even with that type of information, we can make good assessments of how well a company is positioned. But with ESG data sets, we get information on how companies interact with their suppliers, with their customers, with their employees. As investors, this is just good practice. You know, it's, it's a benefit to have access to more information. I mean, for you guys, that must just be such a boon, isn't it? That suddenly you've got all this granular information on stuff that you just couldn't access before. That's always how I've come at it. Um, and, and you know my history from before. I've run emerging market, frontier market strategies and separately um, brought my former shop to become the first quantitative manager to sign the PRI. And the reason why we were able to make that jump was because of what you just said, because we said, hey, we see this not only as, as a growth industry, that was back in 2007. So in retrospect, we were right. It was a growth industry. We just didn't realize how much. But more importantly, this curves out whole new research areas. And that's absolutely been the case. It's um, you know a, created opportunities for new products, for example, in the context of you know, tobacco-free um, portfolios for investors or emerging markets, fossil fuel-free is a product I developed um, once upon a time. These exclusionary products can be readily constructed using systematic tools. The converse of a negative exclusion is a positive exclusion. So um, investing only in one set of companies is also what we call today thematic investing. So if we want to invest in a climate fund, for example, we'll only give the portfolio's exposure to new new energy types of companies. Those are those are two applications of this world of big data in the ESG space. But the other two that I find really fascinating, and I still think we're just in the earliest stages of, are integration, integrating these ESG principles and you know very traditional mandates, as I said before, to give us a more holistic view and to make better investment decisions. You characterized it previously as just prudent risk management. Um, I agree it's risk management, but I would say there's a component of alpha there as well. So that integration strategy, you know, despite the fact that there's been so much uptake in the language around it, I still think there's a long ways to go in terms of the integration of these concepts. We're seeing this in India now where their governance scandals occurring with the Adani group, um, questions around how well governed was this company, the company stock price has done incredibly well. Were investors incorporating governance signals within their models? You know, I, th I think there's still room to run in terms of not just the incorporation of governance signals, but environmental and social ones as well. 
And then the last piece on sustainable investing, the last sort of strategy around it, I mentioned you know, the negative exclusions, the thematics, the integration. And the fourth one, and I think where we're really heading toward is the space around impact. And again, the power of capital content. You know, how can we not just use our investments to, to generate a better return, but how can we use our investments to do better in these communities? I love that you ended on that because impact is something I'm particularly interested in. When I first heard the term impact investing, it just struck me as similar to sort of ESG, I suppose, in that, well, of course you'd want to invest your money in a way where it's working for something that you believe in. So it seemed like a great idea to me um, to watch that grow to from what has been very much a niche to something that's now got, I think, more than a trillion dollars behind it in terms of investment capital is really extraordinary. But as with ESG, um, you know, we're talking about integrating ESG into pretty much mainstream investing. Uh, do you think that impact investing could become part of the mainstream? Do you think it stops becoming impact investing and starts becoming investing? Because, you know, who wouldn't want your investment, your money to be doing stuff that you believe in? So interesting. So interesting. I, I, I love the thought. Um, I, I have been focused on this idea of what you just sort of glossed over, but very um, correctly sort of indicated that this, the impact space has grown massively. It's gone from you know, this very niche investment strategy that historically had been made up of really primarily kind of local community type investments. Um, is it in the trillions already? If it's in the trillions, I've got to believe it's come down because, because of the increased regulations. It's been a tough space to be in. You know, the greenwashing concerns have been well-founded, as we talked about before. And so this, the uh, regulatory requirements, especially in Europe, where impact investing has become very popular very quickly, have become more stringent. And so um, I have observed that a number of strategies that were labeled sustainable or ESG or impact are no longer. And so in fact, there's been sort of a outflow um, or, or a perceived outflow, just a, a diminishing in AUM associated with impact. Does it go here long-term? Uh, I, I, that's part of sort of the thesis around the book and to recognize this dual purpose of capitalism, that it can generate a it should generate a return and generating a return by literally investing in infrastructure. And shouldn't we be utilizing our capital to invest in infrastructure that builds the society we want to live in? I think where it becomes more challenging, and this has always been the challenge of this whole responsible or sustainable space, is whose values, whose version of impact, what are we actually trying to fund here? And that's, of course, very morals driven, very personal, very heterogeneous, and, and hence the challenge. Yeah, I guess in journalistic shorthand, it's, it's a minefield. <laughs> um, one of the things you just reminded me of, actually, in the impact space, and I think this may propagate beyond that space, is this idea of catalytic capital. It's very much a theme in the impact world at the moment that you use a relatively small investment to draw in a whole bunch of other investments. I mean, that's what the development finance institutions have been trying to do for a long time. But I think they've been constrained by all sorts of regulations and the remits they have, the mandates they have, that perhaps haven't enabled them to invest in the way that could have been fully catalytic. So I think we're seeing the private sector recognizing this catalytic capital idea, right? I mean, we've got all these buzzwords like crowding in, you know, you can crowd in other investments by basically taking that first risk. But I think it's really starting to expand beyond the impact space. Is that something that you would say you're seeing too? I, I, I think it's exactly right, um, as you say it, that we are in the brink of, you know, this, this 
wall of capital moving toward, toward more catalytic purposes. One of the major themes I observe, especially in emerging and frontier markets, is sort of the alignment or the fusion of objectives between the multilaterals and the private sector today. And in many ways, the private capital can do what the multi, you know, the, the multilaterals and the NGOs, the governments have only wanted to. To your point, they've been sort of constrained by whatever infrastructure they're in today. And the private sector is, of course, well known for its efficiency and productivity. Um, I couldn't agree more strongly. And again, part of it just comes out of this philosophy of recognizing that capital has influence. Sometimes I chuckle at the the, the uh, title of the book is so simple. Of course, everybody knows that money's valuable. Who doesn't want access to capital? But once you really embody or sort of kind of recognize the power of this notion, we can use it to fund businesses that historically haven't had access to capital. We can use the power of our voice as investors to be stewards in ways that we historically haven't had access to. So you mentioned buzzwords, you know, I, I, I agree with you on the catalytic capital point. I also think of it, again, primarily in the context of emerging and even more so frontier markets where there hasn't been the same access to liquidity or capital. Just being an investor in the space, just being an investor, you know, who has capital to put to work to provide that secondary financing for companies or even to provide liquidity or a diversity of investors that in, in and of itself is a measure of financial additionality. That in and of itself is, is, a, is valuable to the companies on the other end. And I've seen it you know, in my own work, being a systematic investor who invests in these markets, I'm not only in less liquid markets, but I'm li literally covering every, every single security that prices. So you know, more, more traditional kind of fundamental investors are going to be covering the larger cap companies and companies where there's better information coverage, but more sell-side coverage, for example. I'll go where there's no coverage. I'll go into the $25, $50 million stocks in Botswana or Vietnam. And typically, when I've had investments there, I've actually been the only institutional investor. And that in and of itself can be catalytic to put that liquidity to work um, and, and again, to bring some awareness, to put an institutional stamp on a security stock price, that in and of itself is a way of driving some level of impact, giving companies, particularly those in my process, ones that are SDG aligned, kind of access to institutional capital. The other piece of it is stewardship. I'll pause there. Um, Just to your but, point about the, you know, about going into the smaller and medium-sized enterprises and the analytical system that you're in, you're using to enable you to do that with confidence, is that in itself catalytic? As you say, you know, most people when they look at the investments into frontier markets, they can be comfortable really only with the big names. Like take Kenya as a case in point. Um, everybody was invested in Safaricom, for example. I'm not really sure what else people were investing in, but they were like, oh, I'm in Kenya. And I think, you know, you can be critical of that, but at the same time, it's practical. There really wasn't enough information available on many other opportunities to invest there. So, you know, it's fascinating that what you're doing is not just looking at new markets and looking at places where particularly invest Western investors might not venture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're mm -hmm. also on a frontier of investment assessment and management that could really open the door to more money being put to work in places that really need it. I am so passionate about this theme. Um, and, and one of the reasons why I love it is because I fervently believe that sustainable investing is only sustainable if it's returns driven, that 
you know, there's only a small pocket of the world who's willing to use their investment capital as effectively philanthropy or, or to some extent concessionary that first and foremost, the bulk of investors are going to need to see returns. And in these parts of the world, not only is there sort of this innovative solution to financing them, but there is less institutional capital. And so the mispricings are more pronounced. And so there is outsized opportunity for alpha. So to me, I see it as really the sweet spot where we can generate not just alpha, but also impact. And on that point, um, just to go a level deeper there, I have talked to multilaterals and NGOs around utilizing a, a, a sort of set of systems like the ones that we use as systematic managers. And the feedback I get is that it's innovative in a couple of contexts. One is risk, that investors, when they're looking to get into Kenya or even deeper into the frontier, you know, into a Zambia or into a Botswana, how do you price risk? How do you assess risk? That's a hard question. Of course, different, um, you know, different bodies are going to run different analyses on it. But as a private sector investor with a diversified um, set of companies or countries that we're able to invest across, we have our own tools for mitigating risk. We don't sort of get stuck in the bureaucracy that, that larger organizations would be stuck into. The, the other strategy um, that we're looking to unlock here is around position sizing, that many parts of the market that need access to capital, the slices that are required to be catalytic are actually very small. They're on the order of 50,000, as I mentioned before, 25,000. And so how do you take a pool of investments, call it 100 million, and slice it into um, amounts that are going to be trackable, you know, on the investor side, and yet also meaningful on, on the side of the recipient? And again, this is where I feel like technology broadly or systematic investing specifically really has an important role to play in this space. Yeah, that's fascinating, because as you were talking earlier, I was thinking about blended capital, which is something else I got super excited. That's a bit of a theme running through this, isn't it? It's things that Dan got excited about. Anyway, blended capital is one of the things that I've got very excited about. And that's another thing where, you know, you first hear about it. And I was like, well, duh, of course, you'd want to blend your capital with different risk profiles. And essentially, you're talking about stirring together DFI money, Development Finance Institute money, um, private capital, maybe government guarantees or government investment, and using each one of those to help bring projects to life that otherwise would be stuck, maybe because the early part is just too high risk, and maybe even the later part is too profitable for the foundations or the philanthropists to be looking at. And so the concept of blended finance seems like such a great idea, but it also felt like it kind of died on the vine a little bit. But now I'm seeing in the impact world, it's very much alive and well. It sounds like you're also thinking about that same concept, but not necessarily calling it blended finance, but a similar sort of idea. Um, maybe even within an individual investment portfolio, could you say, well, we've got this $100 million and we're going to devote $1 million to the high-risk early-stage development needs, and then the rest of the portfolio, the $99 million, can benefit from that, can build on that? Mm-hmm. I mean, yes and no. Yeah, yes, it, this is very much akin to blended capital. I agree. It's a space that hasn't taken off, but my view is it's still early. Um, again, it's it's kind of akin. Well, you know, I get very impatient about these things. <laughs> um, it, it's akin to this theme of the multilaterals and the private sector coming together, as historically they haven't done. But that's changing. It's, and, and I think the PRI is an incredible example. The PRI is no longer UN-backed. Um, but it was the first, at least from my experience as an investor, the first time I saw 
a UN-led organization really reshaping markets. And I think the SDGs is positioned to do something similar. Um, but again, you, you've so, got this- So you mentioned the alphabet soup earlier. Oh. <laughs> um, just for listeners that don't know, PRI is the Principles of Responsible Investment. SDGs are the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, I, I wish I could put links into the audio, but people in our audience will just have to go and Google these if you want to learn more about them. Thanks for pushing the pause button. You're right. PRI is, is the rubber stamp um, that investors can effectively sign up to, to, to acknowledge that they are responsible investors. That occurred in 2008 or so, plus or minus a year, um, and, and today has attracted trillions of dollars. Um, and the SDGs is, is my vision of what's to come. Um, we're, still, we're already several years into... Um, these are UN-backed goals. They're the modern, the updated version of the Millennium Goals. But many investors, including mine, think of the Sustainable Development Goals as a blueprint for the earth. You know, where are there unmet needs, particularly in the emerging markets, and where is capital needed to fund those needs? Funding those needs doesn't just deliver impact, but it's creating, it's, it's funding products where there are buyers behind it. It's creating effectively new customer groups. So again, it's an example of how in this little niche of the world and sort of the lower liquid, lower market cap emerging in frontier market space, I see that there's a lot of opportunity not just to deliver impact, but for investors to generate very attractive returns. That is super thought-provoking. I think I'm going to have to do a whole podcast on the SDGs and not just the effectiveness of them, but perhaps some of the unintended consequences of them as well. I mean, there really is a lot to unpack there. And talking about unpacking, you've already unpacked a whole bunch of themes and ideas, but there's more I'd like to dig into. Um, obviously, the focus of this podcast is on frontier and emerging markets, and you really don't get much more frontier as a continent than Africa. So Africa represents a substantial and important part of the frontier and emerging markets universe. And while, you know, we obviously can't paint the entire continent with one brush, what mega themes do you expect to be most prominent in the coming decade as Africa's population continues to swell and the crucial role its resources play in the economy, the global economy, continues to grow? The mega themes that I see reshaping Africa and creating opportunity for the decade ahead are the ones I mentioned in Power of Capital. It's one, technology, being able to distribute resources, distribute goods, distribute products, including access to um, renewable energy throughout the continent into the last mile. Technology has the power to reshape opportunity within Africa. Sustainability, again, Africa is just a case example of how products aligned with the SDGs, for example, the Sustainable Development Goals, um, can not only generate returns for investors, but can also deliver impact. And of course, you mentioned um, perhaps doing a, a whole session on the Sustainable Development Goals, addressing both the positive impacts as well as the less intended ones. The other significant theme that my book addresses, of course, it's on frontier and emerging market economies, is this notion of re-globalization, this idea that while the West is turning protectionist and you know, calling that globalization has ended or globalization has peaked, I see that as really a Western theme. In the East, free trade agreements are still being signed, um, and, and I've never seen such stronger alliance across Eastern Europe. Asia, the Middle East, and Africa. And again, Africa, especially with China's involvement, brings these issues to the forefront. 
China's still funding a massive amount of Africa's backbone in terms of its physical infrastructure, roadways, ports, airports, but it's digital infrastructure as well. So as we think about technology and how will technology be used for sustainable applications, we have to recognize that in Africa, at least China is funding the bulk of it. And, you know, are we as Western investors, are we comfortable with China's approach to leading the sustainable development goals? I, I think that's a provocative and open question. Wow. I, I think we're, we're getting a bit of a collision of themes here. We've got China acting as a catalytic investor, potentially drawing in capital from other investors. But uh, let, let's save that one for another time. Um, Asha, I really, really appreciate you spending time with us. Uh, you've given us a lot to think about. Um, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your insights. It sounds great. Fascinating, Dan. Thanks so much. And thanks to your listeners. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. As Asha said, thanks to you, our listeners, and thank you to Asha Mehta, Managing Partner and Chief Investment Officer at Global Delta Capital. As always, you can get the latest summary of news from the Frontier and Growth Markets at frontiermarkets.co, and you can also sign up there for our weekly newsletter, which will land in your inbox every Saturday and provide you with a smorgasbord of the week's key news from smaller emerging markets. The music on this podcast is What's the Angle by Shane Ivers from silvermansound.com. And if you've enjoyed this podcast and want us to be able to produce more of them, please share it with your friends, your colleagues, your family, your followers on social media, anyone else you can think of. And if you have any feedback, please share it with us. Send me an email at dan at frontiermarkets.co. And that's a wrap. Until next time.